Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. What is saving your life right now? It's a popular question at the end of podcast interviews and Substack articles. What's saving your life? This question elicits answers from running, to poetry, to chocolate cake, to a good night's sleep. I won't tell you which answers in that list are mine. Earlier this spring, when we hosted what was really an absurdly fabulous lineup of preachers and theologians, Jennifer Bailey, among them, commented that Christians are obsessed with the question of salvation, of how and why we are saved, what Jesus has to do with it. Now, maybe Episcopalians are not actually obsessed with the question of salvation. So whether or not it's just a good dinner party query or a theological test, the question of what's saving your life is an engrossing topic. However, there are times when the question is actually literal, as the question lands in the first two chapters of Exodus. What's saving your life in the face of very real, yet also ordinary daily precarity upon which newly manufactured insecurity is piled, this question takes on a different, ta- a different cast. What's saving your life? Well, let's see. Two midwives, a desperate mother, a savvy and assertive big sister, and a princess. Pharaoh looked around at the hard, scrabble lives of the Israelites, and he saw a reason to be afraid for his own security. And he wielded his power and influence to oppress them further with forced labor, making their lives bitter with hard service, and encouraging the other Egyptians to be ruthless in their treatment of them. And when that wasn't enough to assuage his fear and dread of what might come, he tried to enlist the midwives to join his genocidal campaign. They balked and refused. And the Levite mother, who knew that every boy was to be thrown into the Nile, well, you could say that she technically abides by this edict but only after waiting a while, and then preparing carefully a small basket for him, with his sister watching over him as he floats among the reeds where hopefully the current won't be quite as strong. And then Pharaoh's daughter, seeing the child, recognized him as one of the Hebrew children, yet she drew him out of the water and arranged for his care, knowingly or unknowingly, back at his mother's breast. It's true that anyone can feel insecure. 
There's not an objective, measurable benchmark. It's subjective. It's a feeling. And we're all small, mortal, limited creatures. No matter what things look like on the outside, we're all acquainted with frailty. We can feel uncertain no matter what rung of the ladder we're on. So even though this story does not invite pity for Pharaoh, we have to start by acknowledging his fear. And as with another genocidal king in another book of the Bible, when the king is afraid, then all the land is afraid around him. What Pharaoh believes will save him is what makes everyone else around him tremble, what makes their dread become all too real. Pharaoh's insecurity, however much we might want to roll our eyes at this idea, turns him against the descendants of Joseph, which is ironic because Joseph was the former savior of Egypt in a time of famine, another insecure age. This pharaoh's fragile hold on the reins of power blinds him to an entirely different kind of power that five women exert. Five women who are surely templates for the many, many kinds of people who will creatively disobey. A word on the women. One of the reasons that the women are successful in their pushback against Pharaoh and his diabolical campaign is precisely because of their lack of his kind of power. They are essentially invisible. They are invisible to him in particular. As a group, as women, none of them have status. And in their individuality, they are each even more likely to vanish. Women attending to other women at childbirth, a place of extraordinary vulnerability and welcoming no men. A mother suckling her child, a little girl, and even Pharaoh's daughter, whether a dilettante or not, surely he was not taking her counsel. In his machinations, Pharaoh doesn't account for any of them because they don't count. Yet, they know what will save them, perhaps because they are accustomed to living right at the edges in every way, and they lean into the power of being overlooked. Like a cloak of invisibility, they are able to move through the world and slide in and out of places where all the difference can be made. More significantly, they have learned in their vulnerability and insecurity not to turn away from each other, but to turn toward each other. The midwives in solidarity with those on the birthing stool, 
a mother and her young girl child hatching a plan to keep her baby brother afloat. And Pharaoh's daughter, not buying the story that scapegoats the Hebrews and denies them their humanity. And the most vulnerable moments with uncelebrated strength, each one makes a choice, turning toward care, toward tenderness, toward hope. Instead of hardening their hearts and building walls of mortar and brick, five women soften and take risks beyond their boundaries. They choose to act in the little corner of the kingdom that is theirs to act in and to bring health and hope and, yes, salvation. In precarious and insecure times, whether those are internal worries or existential threats, what direction do you and I turn? How do we learn what they learned, to turn toward and not away? Where does the hope to act in the face of fear come from? The word fear is actually only used in this story to describe the fear that the midwives felt not for Pharaoh, but toward God. And this fear is more akin to awe and reverence, the kind of fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. When they remember their place in the scheme of things and are aware of the magnitude of God's presence, they're more able to choose bravely. When they're attuned to their relationship with God, they're able to see the ties that bind them to the people all around them. And lives are saved. Moses' life for sure, and also the unnumbered lives of other children. And maybe more lives are saved. If we expand our definition beyond being pulled out of a river, to include the idea that some lives are saved when they're changed. Wouldn't you agree that the five women's lives were changed and saved too? And untold numbers of others who witnessed them and stories we don't know that aren't told. When the river is more metaphorical than actual, we still need to figure out what's changing us and saving us. So what's saving your life? Could it be some of the same things? A reverence for God and a turning toward connection? Our lives are made more bearable, and people are quietly saved by the bonds of friendship, by the way we're moved when we see acts of bravery, by the small choices we make to align our lives with integrity and faith. What's saving your life right now? Perhaps some of the very same things that saved Moses and his generation, an apprehension of God, the invisible kindness of others, the strength of character that your mother taught you. 
our feelings of vulnerability and insecurity are real. Everyone feels them. And in times like these, just like in times long ago, we need to know the answer to the question. What's saving your life? If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.